analysis, Mr. Spock. Alien weapon is a form of plasma energy, Captain. Exact composition, unknown. Guidance system, unknown. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Crema. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mans. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be working once again with our producer. He's the man at the board. Keeps us on an even keel. Bad boy, Benny Mathers. Benny, how are you, sir? Doing well. And uh, I guess happy Friday to my favorite Floridians. I have to slow down on that because I'm getting older these days. So <laughs> I don't want to flub it up too much. <laughs> You, you came through with flying colors. Thank you. We're thank both you. wearing green today. What is that green it, thing you've got on? Uh, it's a station promo from the sister station okay. down the hall, but it's, you know, it's a Very great day good. in the Pacific Northwest, so why not? And Washington, after all, is the evergreen state. Bingo. Just reached deep uh, for that one, didn't you, Gary? <laughs> I had that one tucked away in my holster. I bet. <laughs> Well, it's good to see you again, Benny, and it's good to be talking about one of our favorite subjects. I have said for many years, from the beginning, really, when Manson Mitchell became Manson Mitchell, that when it comes to the higher considerations of life, ultimate issues, if you will, there are two questions that every human being will grapple with at one point or another. You're more or less confronted by those questions, no matter how much some of us may try to ignore them. They will not be ignored. And those two questions are, are we alone in the universe? Are we the highest form of sentient life in the entire physical universe? Gosh, I hope not. We we screw up pretty good. <laughs> we, we need somebody to show us a better way if indeed they exist. That's an essential question. That's one of the golden questions that people always wonder about. And the other, of course, is what happens to us, if anything, when we die? You know, are we simply biological units? And when we expire, that's the end of us. Kaput. Forget about it. Or is there something more? And in various forms and fashions, Suzanne Mitchell and I have tried over the years, we're in our 17th year of grappling with these questions and many other subsidiary questions. So today we turn to that first one I mentioned, are we alone in the universe? What's the evidence? What are the current investigations? Let's get updated. No better person to consult with than our friend. And I do emphasize friend. He's not simply a friend of the show. He's a friend IRL in real life with us. He and and uh, his wonderful wife, Julie, have made their acquaintance. We have broken bread together, and we had a whole bunch of questions for him. Not enough to be answered in one dinner. We have too many questions there. So we always have Sam on when we want an expert view, and Suzanne has his mad props to explain why we consider him a reliable expert on the subject of UFOs and UAPs. Sam Maranto is the state director of the Illinois State Chapter of the Mutual UFO Network, also called MUFON. He is also an investigative researcher best known for his work on the Tinley Park mass sightings of 2004 and the Chicago O'Hare Gate C-17 incident of 2006. As a frequent guest to a variety of radio shows, as well as a requested public speaker, Sam Aranto makes a point to cover key fundamental facts that unshakably illustrate the genuine nature of this phenomenon. And we are happy to have you once again back on with us, Sam Aranto. Hello. Gosh, it's good to hear from you guys, see you guys in this instance, and um, your audience, who is just fantastic. Every once in a while, I get some sort of communique, and they're always welcome to send an email to me at MUFONSAM1 at gmail.com. Excellent. Excellent. We'll be sure to give that out at the bottom of the hour once again, but in the meantime, it's uh, there's been a lot on the television a lot in the news about all kinds of things uap and ufo unidentified aerial phenomenon and unidentified flying objects and i'm sure you're keeping up with all of it what do you think is happening 
with this new wave of information which is coming out? Well, starting in this year, it was so many different things going on. But recently, let's say with the um, uh, the presentation to the select committee, um, the intelligence committee for the Senate, uh, Director Kirkpatrick uh, made his presentation. And of course, there wasn't very many people there, but that wasn't the closed committee presentation. So we get the filtered down or watered down version of what's going on. And again, we were expecting something a little bit more emphasizing detail to those genuine UAPs, those genuine UFOs, those things that are so exotic and definitely there, yet mentioned at the end. And of course, they punctuated as being, well, we have no evidence that this is extraterrestrial. But what they did say is that if they did, they would send it off to uh, basically NASA because it would be somebody else's problem. SEP was the term they used. So that started the the ball rolling. And then, of course, we had the the, uh, panel from NASA, which said pretty much the same thing. They're looking for more data. They want quality evidence, and that's fine. And then, of course, the groundbreaker, the real big one that happened just recently, and that's the one I think you're going to have some questions on, was the whistleblower that came forward and really shook things up in the last couple weeks. Sam, we want to get into all of the above very shortly, but just for the sake of understanding the nomenclature, I remember reading my first book on the subject of flying saucers before that term became passe. Now it's referred to more as slang than anything when we say flying saucers. But there was a book that came out in the 1960s. I was still in parochial school, but I remember being electrified when I read this book. It was called Flying Saucers Serious Business, written by an Indianapolis broadcaster by the name of Frank Edwards. He didn't synthesize the material particularly well. He might not have even intended to do so, but he could compile stories with the best of them. He was a news gatherer. And I remember reading this book and just thinking, oh, my God, what if this stuff is real? What if this is not just made up there? And ever since, I have just been attracted to this subject because it is, if no other question arises in human life, this matter has cosmic implications. And I'm curious about the nomenclature because many times now in print, you can find endless stuff online about this. The phenomena will be referred to as UFO slash UAP. What is intended by that and why the need for the slash? It seems like the nomenclature itself is evolving. I think that's it. The nomenclature is evolving and they still want to communicate the fact that we're talking about the same, if not similar, topic except we don't want to carry the luggage. And the original luggage, of course, originated in in Washington State, and that was flying saucers in 1947. And, of course, that would have been the Kenneth Arnold sighting and seeing the objects uh, near Rainier, the nine objects that he said seemed to look like they were skipping across water, like uh, uh, saucers, skipping across water. And it didn't take that long. In fact, it was a Chicago newspaper um, reporter that used the term flying saucer. So it's funny, both locations uh, inspired the flying saucer phrase, which eventually uh, moved into UFO, unidentified flying objects, which of course was a military term. That in turn got changed in two or three different locations because of the stigma to be unidentified aerial phenomena or unidentified anomalous phenomena. And both, or let's give you some ideas where that was. In Britain, the MOD was using that for a while, and so did NARCAP, the National Aviation Reporting Center for Anomalous Phenomena which also originated in Washington State. So there's a lot there in Washington when it came to UAP. 
Now, in recent years, that was was actually being used probably, I would say, at least into 2007, summers in that range. And we had uh, the ATIP program, which was associated with OSAP, one being pertaining to phenomena in general and looking at the potential of, of all these unusual phenomena being applied to weapon platforms uh, 40 years in advance. The other interesting thing is ATIP, uh, which is anomalous aerial uh, uh, technical uh, a threat and in investigative, uh, uh, whatever the hell, there's sort of many names, but uh, I have it here. There's a whole list of them. And, and the bottom line, that one, um, Spirit Out came out of that. So in other words, these, these, these titles, these nomenclatures, and, they're, and they change internally too. The strangest thing about it, they also in change, change internally, which means it's not the same darn thing all the time. ATIP, the advanced weapons, the other one is OSAP, which I don't know. Do you remember that one? No, I don't. OSAP was the airborne, uh, the advanced weapons, the advanced aerospace weapon systems application program. And that was the program that was funded by the $22 million initially, and that went to Bigelow Aerospace. And then the advanced aerospace threat identification was ATIP. What spun out of that, of course, was the, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. And then the aerial object identification management synchronization group. Now there's a mouthful. And then finally, we're at the All Domains Anomaly Resolution Office, which is AARO. Let's just keep it UFO, and the world would be a better place. Well, agreed there. And in fact, it would make FOIA requests a lot simpler because you spend a lot of money risking the possibility of being turned down if you don't have the terms and the nomenclature. Once again, they're correct when people make requests for this sensitive information regarding UFOs and UAPs. Correct. Correct. You it's know, so to get that right, too. You're, you're, you're so uh, embedded in this... Um, information for so many years now as gary and i have been when we did recently watch the show with the whistleblower we were kind of yawning ho-hum heard it before and and i'm wondering if um if the information is becoming so commonplace to so many people are there are there actually new people coming on board saying that this is real because there are so many more people seeing things or the information is coming out at such a rapid rate that when eventually the government stops saying that we don't know and they finally say, oh yeah, we know everything, um, is it going to be like not even a big surprise to anybody? I personally think people don't give a hoot either yeah. way. Uh, people are more interested about their next dollar, the next bill, taking care of it. Uh, who's on television tonight? The price of gas, you know. And then, of course, uh, being able to have some sort of something to hate. If it isn't politics, it's religion or race or something. We're a strange breed. Yeah. And, um, few of us, I think, I though I think there's more and more people are starting to realize that no, we need to entertain these other mysteries because only everything is going to change once this information does get out. And I can't help but believe there's an impetus somewhere trying to bring this out for some reason. And that that I think is so important. Um, what would change? What would be the dominoes that would come into play? I think we could talk about that, but that could be another show. Um, there are too many things that would be affected that I'm sure this was all taken into consideration well before uh, even the nomenclature UFO came into play. 
I wanted to mention something that I read from the late great Stanton Friedman, who is the gentleman who blew the lid off the Roswell case after many years of secrecy back in 1978. And in his own writing regarding Roswell, he was speculating that alien intelligences, wherever they came from, could look at planet Earth, as we call it, and conclude that the species that is, and I'm paraphrasing here, the species that runs the show here on this planet seems to engage in an awful lot of tribal warfare. So people from another neighborhood in our galaxy, perhaps beyond, will have, they've discovered Earth, they have come here, they have the technology to get here, but what do they see? What do they observe? These people with, you know, in intelligence beyond anything we can even imagine, they come to our planet. It, I suppose they could they could be forgiven for concluding that we don't want that in our neighborhood. That's and a good, all of this goes on. Yeah, that's a very strong possibility. And, and it was a point that he brought up, and we should really consider it. I like to go back and think, well, what are they? You know, first of all, when we try to think, what are they? What are we? And that really is the, the crux of the problem. We really don't know in a very universal sense through the eyes of something else and something that we should know who we are, what we are, and why we are. If we had those answers, I can't help but feel that much of the phenomena that we're engaging would probably mesh like gears and we'd have a better understanding of this whole phenomenon, because really what it comes down to, it all boils down to us. When we evaluate the phenomena, we're also evaluating it, evaluating it through only a human lexicon, and that's it. So let's say, where are they coming from? We don't even know where they're coming from, per se. We don't know if it's another planet, another star system. Maybe, not, and take this into consideration, that they may be a species here on Earth. We do not own this planet. Maybe we are just stewards to some degree. They could be sharing this time and space or space-time with us, be it some other realm, dimensionally, or whatever we want to use as far as terms, or quite possibly something else, and a combination thereof. So I say what we're dealing with is a multiplicity of phenomena and how it relates to us may alter it time to time. In other words, not necessarily an agenda if it's benign, and it's more of a clinical analysis. So we don't know if there is an agenda between any of these things, because I don't think it's one. It's a multiplicity of things. And then the other thing is, is it uh, the, the next thing, the next juncture, of course, would be malevolent and bug benevolent because we always think in that very divisive way of thinking which isn't correct so if it's not either or the other benign may be the place where it is and it's more of a clinical uh, scenario or something that changes from time to time as agendas and circumstances may be you know, I, I've used this example quite often, Sam, but it pops into my head again when you're talking about being um, malevolent or benevolent and existing, uh, possibly at the same time, possibly even existing here on Earth, not necessarily where we can see them or be aware of them, but I always think about the ant community. Now, there's a whole big thriving community of ants. They've got the worker ants. They've got the queen. They've got all this stuff going on in the ant community. They're not interacting with us. They have their own thing going on. And as far as my being benevolent or malevolent as an outsider to the ant community, I am extremely benevolent in not trying to step on them on purpose or kill them on purpose. I don't have no desire to do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> excuse me, if they come in my house, I'm going to kill them. You know, I live here. So that you don't get to precise, live where I live. <laughs> that was precisely the exact scenario. 
Uh, I was thinking about that this whole morning because we've had encounters again with the um, carpenter ants. And I kind of like them. I don't want to kill them. They're so intelligent. And and very, and I like ant. I like all animals, uh, nature in general. So I don't like to kill them. But as they come in, they always seem to show up in threes. You could be assured there, there's going to be more. And you're going to have issues. Again, we don't want to engage them uh, we, unless we are threatened by them or feel threatened. Is this the same point that's going on or the same circumstances? I'll bring this up because now we're starting to see more of these smaller uh, orbs or objects, UAPs that are flying around. And in, and it seems like they want to harass or come closer to our aircraft. They are actually causing issues, potentially causing issues to safety of flight. Now, is it purely out of curiosity or is there, is there a uh, another intent involved? I don't know. Again, these being smaller objects, they're saying one meter to four meters. And as you both know, these things, uh, what, what I'm used to saying, are much larger than that. You know, the large triangular craft, uh, hundreds of feet, if not thousands of feet. So these smaller objects, are they similar? Are they related to these larger objects? What is their purpose? Is it reconnaissance? Is there something else going on? And this has piqued the concern uh, as far as safety of flight and, of course, uh, national, uh, as far as the, uh, as far as national security goes to. That reminds me of close encounters of the third kind when all the cameras are going and every everybody's taking pictures and they're looking and all the lights are flashing around the devil's tower and and then it stops and everybody goes, oh, just wasn't that so great. That was interesting. That was really phenomenal. And then boom, something the size of a football field comes over devil's tower and and then you realize how much bigger it is. And it, it reminds me of the Phoenix lights because you know we had we had heard in talking to people about the Phoenix lights that the sky was completely blacked out by what it was that was coming over Phoenix. So we don't we can't build it, we can't imagine it, we can't fly it, and yet there are witnesses to things that are that big, yeah. that phenomenal. And, you know, what do you, how do you, how do you get your mind around that? The thing is there, and, and then of course you have the so-called skeptics still discounting this when there's more than enough um, evidence to the effect. And they say, well, well, you know, bring me the ashtray or physical evidence. No, there were enough quality observers to give you solid antidotes and more than that. Uh, things were tucked away on that instant. Same thing here in Tinley Park. We have footage. There was there was actually some footage, uh, more than what you've seen as far as the Phoenix lights. There are other circumstances tied into that. Um, now, something that big, where do you hide it? Where do you build it? Under the assumption it's our technology. And that's another thing that came into play with uh, uh, Grush's uh, uh, David Grush's uh, statements that he made uh, recently to Ross Col uh, to Ross Colter and on the uh, the debrief to uh, Blumenthal and Kane the the thing he brings out is the re reverse engineering and technologies that have been um, that have been made out of uh, the study of these crafts or components of these crafts. Now, this is something that we've heard all the way back to, of course, Roswell, the Roswell scenario, the um, the, the crimpled uh, metal that has the memory metal. You know, this is one thing that had been reverse engineered uh, not long thereafter. So um, these things did take place. And then, of course, we hear about the um, optics uh, that have been made from the study of that, the uh, fiber optics, the uh, night vision, 
uh, material from the eye or the lid of the beings, etc. When we uh, read the book uh, day after Roswell, that's presented in there. Now, of course, is that evidence? No, it's it's a clue to something. And I hope more information will be revealed. And more importantly, I hope we get a chance to evolve into really uh, information that's been held away from us for at least 100 plus years. And maybe that could help society on a larger level. But I hope at the same time we do things um, with a greater social conscious, not just everything being applicable from a, a point of a weapon, but something as a weapon against maybe the horrible things that we have endured with um, as far as poverty, hunger, disease, maybe a weapon against that. A good and bold statement from our honored guest of the hour, Sam Moranto. He's the Illinois State Director of MUFON Mutual UFO Network. We're going to be adding letters here if this keeps up with the nomenclature. We've worn out that word pretty much in a half hour. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take our break. And when we come back, so much more to talk about in regards to current things and also going back some years because Sam Moranto was a witness to the Tinley Park UFO case. And there's a lot to be said about that. We've covered it before, but it's good to have a refresher and a bunch of other stuff. We've got questions. He's got answers. We appreciate your interest and the fact that you tuned in to us today. We never like to take that for granted. We are Manson Mitchell. Give us a couple of minutes. We will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Sam Moranto from the Illinois Mutual UFO Network to talk about the latest mysterious and mystifying sightings. On Saturday, Mary Lee LeBay returns with her new book called Mastering Hypnotherapy. Elevate healing practices with sound advice and proven techniques. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Alternative Talk, 1150. It's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Sam Moranto. He is the state director of the Illinois State Chapter of the Mutual UFO Network. We are talking us some saucers today. Sam, you gave out your email earlier, and I'd like you to do that again. If people want to connect with you, if they have a question, if they have a, a story to tell you, then um, where is the best place for them to contact you? They can contact me at MUFON, M-U-F-O-N, Sam, and the number one at gmail.com. MUFON, Sam, the number it's one at gmail.com. If you have a sighting, 
please report it to MUFON on the MUFON database, MUFON.com. And in the state of Washington, you have a fantastic organization and chapter there. And I recommend going to some of their meetings, getting in contact with them, and please become a member. Excellent. Thank well you. Said. Yes, thank you. Sam, there's so many directions to go. Let me let me go ahead and quote you. This is something I got from you via electronic communication. Thought I would read this because it it if anything, deepens the mystery and helps to explain a lot of the perplexity that the observers and the experts feel in regard to the phenomena in our skies. In the 50s, they used to say, watch the skies, because there was stuff going on that we didn't understand, particularly starting in 1947 and then going forward. Many, many sightings and chronicled by any number of people around the world. Sam wrote recently, and if you're quoting, you're quoting, that's fine here, but I wanted to get this out so we'd have another point of discussion, Sam. Now it's my word. <laughs> okay, great. Well, we're talking about the Tic Tac, but what a mundane name for something so extraordinary. The Tic Tac, it was, it was a, an apparent craft caught by pilots, Navy pilots, as I recall, on their radar, and there is film of it, and the reactions can be heard. This was truly amazing stuff. And Sam wrote to me, the distance covered in 0.78 seconds, not even a full second, by the tic-tac was nearly 28,000 feet. The speed would have been over 24,000 miles per hour or Mach 31. This was recorded in real time on multiple radars seen by multiple observers in multiple aircrafts aboard at least two ships and quite possibly elsewhere. We keep hearing about objects seen moving from a dead standstill to Mach 2 in a blink. That's remarkable in itself, but don't forget the Mach 31 incident or many others. That's what you wrote to me, Sam, and I'm trying to recall, I never had the privilege of being on a Concorde flight there, can you imagine the, the, it would be a miracle there with all the noise and everything and all the hoopla. I mean, the speed was cut down between uh, travel time between New York and London, New York and Paris. It was extraordinary. Didn't the Concorde reach Mach 1 at some point, typically in the flight? Mach 1. Well, now we're talking about Mach 31. What human being could survive the pressures? Under, you know, a normal conventional craft, there's no way possible. You have to have a craft that maintains its own gravity, uh, electrogravitics. And that's the, the, that's the crux, or let's say the component involved here. That is the mechanism. What, how is it achieved is the important thing. It has to maintain its own gravity, or it has to um, be anti-gravitic. It has to be unaffected by gravity or be able to maintain or limit the effect of gravity. So we had the throughout, oh God, I don't know how many years, even in like the late 40s and 50s, they were recording them. Remember one doctor saying that one observation was uh, 47,000 miles per hour. 47,000. So we're talking, uh, what, Mach 60? I mean, that is ridiculous. At my analogy, Sam, if, and pardon me for interrupting, but sure, we just in the last 24 hours have been made aware of a terrible tragedy undersea. The, the Titan and the pressures that apparently caused a catastrophic implosion. Now that's under the water there and the pressures that would be felt by anyone exposed to them uh, there, it would be perhaps instantaneously fatal. We don't know. We haven't got all the answers. But under that kind of pressure, almost three miles down, searching for the Titanic, to be under that kind of pressure is to take an enormous risk with your life, to voluntarily go into that kind of spatial arrangement in that small undersea craft that's submersible. How would that compare, given what apparently has happened to those poor souls, God rest them, there, that... Uh, how do we compare that to the kind of G-forces when you're flying around up there and you hit speeds of like Mach 31 or higher? 
I just I can't get my mind around what you would need in the way of technology and the mechanisms of personal safety to make it from point A to point B. You're going to Earth in this case, and then you want to get back home. Traveling at those kinds of speeds, this is the stuff of science fiction. It is. Um, again, assuming that is the case in point, that they're moving and the very vehicles that we see going from point A to point B. It's my suspicion that isn't the case in point in all of these circumstances. If we have something that's moving through what would be like a wormhole, uh, an Einstein-Rosen bridge, or something else that we can't even imagine uh, dimensionally. Um, and we use the, the term dimensional because there really isn't another term to describe it, but it may be something outside of, of even that arena of thought or realm of thought. The problem is when you're doing when you're doing speed, when you're speeding at that, when you're having that many Gs, it equates to pounds, tonnage. There is no way humanly possible. I think the human body has been uh, able to endure um, Mach 13. They've been able to endure Mach 13. And that I think was in a fall or something i think it's even an f-18 or was an f-15 but one of them uh, they figure it was mach 13 so a person actually lived through that um everybody or anybody no that person had already endured many g's before that and body had adapted to it um they're also they were also in a pressurized suit which would also have helped them but still in all, imagine that Mach 13. I used to know the equation and I can't do it quick in my head, but I can't get it to, you know, to give you how many pounds per square inch or tons. You would be splatted like a fly in an instant. Actually, at those, at that high, like Mach 31 or Mach 60 or whatever, you'd be vaporized, if not uh, atomized. You know, so it's, it's not, it's not something the body is meant to endure. You have to be able to control it. And anti-gravitics, you know, if you can't control gravity, it's going to control you. So that's something we have to take into consideration. The other point you made was, um, I think, um, oh, the world record, the highest speed record uh, was... Yeah, that was the highest speed record at, at X-15. The X-15 was very fast. But, you know, some of the speed records are not disclosed. Some of them are actually still um, top secret. So it's disclosed speeds. We had recently the Mach 30, the uh, X-35, I believe is what it was, that did uh, Mach 30. So um, it's amazing. We have things that go fast but they weren't manned and not talking an F-35, but I think it was the X-35 and it was um, Mach 13. So the thing is, I mentioned before, we are under, under the, uh, we think that it's extraterrestrial, that they are moving from some, some other uh, planet to here in the same vehicle. That may not be the case in point. Don't know. Because we hear all the time by the so-called skeptics saying, well, why do they crash? Well, the thing is, maybe there is an envir environmental change. Maybe there is a disturbance by some piece of technology that we have. Radar can also transmit. And we found out through the years that specific radar may have been interfering some of these craft. And that may be a case in point for some of the crashes, especially during the 40s in the um, uh, plains of Augusta and around Roswell. It may not have been lightning, though lightning may have been a factor or a contributor. We don't know. There are so many mysteries until we can actually get our hands on physical evidence, actual data that could tell us more. We're lost. It's just a matter of speculation. You know, Gary and I watch some of the programming that's on the Weather Channel where they talk about uh, various things that occur just weather-wise and how extremely odd they look. 
looking like, um, you know, bubbles or people waving in the sky or all these colors or, you know, just strange, strange, strange things looking like the earth is undulating. And, and just the weather factor alone, I think is very interesting, but it, it, it harkens back to my, one of the questions that I have is about when this information went dark, because the other kinds of programming that he and I will occasionally catch on a history channel or discovery or one of those others is about indigenous people or um, natives that have been around for a long time that talk about the sky people, you know, when the sky people come. And, and so in some cultures, this is not verboten, it's quite acceptable. And I'm saying, now, why is it? What, what would be that determining factor between all the cultures that say, well, of course, there's people that come from the sky, and there's, there's drawings and paintings and all of that. And then there's the whole group of people, the skeptics that are saying, well, you know, we don't really know. We haven't really seen it. Prove it to me. Show it to me. Put it in my hand. And 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 so I'm saying, well, why? how did that come about? Why, why did we say, you know, there is no such thing? The thing that I come back to, Sam, and it has to do with something triggered by something you said earlier, and that was you know, wouldn't it be great if we could use the information to eliminate some real problems? And and when Gary and I were talking this morning, I was saying, you know, it seems to me from what little I know or have read or have heard that all of our problems are solvable. Every problem on earth that we have is a solvable problem. But there is weighted against that in the scales, people who don't want that problem solved. And generally, it's because of either power or money. I mean, why don't we have free electricity? You know, why don't we have, why isn't everybody on the planet fed? You know, it isn't a matter of food distribution. It's a matter of the, the, the there's plenty of food. It's not getting to the people who need it. We have the capability to use solar and wind and every kind of power imaginable, plus a bunch we haven't even thought of. But there's always a group of people who are against it because they they haven't figured out how to make money on it. It's about control. It's about power. It is. It is. And, and, And it's not even about money. When you have that degree of authority and power, money is just a... It's just a necessity for trade. It doesn't matter. You could create as much money as you want for whatever commodities. You know, power, fear is a commodity. Fear is a huge commodity. It moves the, the conscious. And, and even greed is fear. The loss of not, of not being able to have as much as a ne- the next person. Greed is fear. It all focused down to some sort of aspect of fear. Now, how does this play into the design uh, the social dynamic quite a bit. It's it's instrumental in the social dynamic. Fear is a commodity and it's used in everything to keep us divided. Divisiveness is essential. Everything back to the Machiavellian, uh, you know, the Republic. I mean, the uh, I mean, we learn that division is essential for control. You divide your your people so you could have control. It's important. God, if we had. If we were united, they divided. There was division by race, and that's starting up again. All these other different things, ideologies, whatever. It, the thing is, we have to realize if we are anything remotely resembling what we call human, we have to not just embrace the ideals that we are different, but to celebrate them, and that is a difference of ideology. That something we could call human if we could celebrate our differences and learn how to use the value that we are different, that we have benefits. And of course, we're, each one of us are so dependent upon each other. That's a blessing, isn't it? That we are dependent upon each other. Now, this technology, 
You mentioned solar and everything. Zero point energy. This energy has been kept at bay from humanity for years. We don't need any of this. We don't need fossil fuels. Now, how would that affect the industry or our economy? We have a petroleum-based economy. How would that how would it hit us? It would be crushing if it all came out at once. Everything here is slow. We have electric cars. We have hybrids. We have everything slow. This is going to be dribbled out, and it's going to be done so in a manageable fashion that the powers that are remain the powers that be, because that is the true definition of national security. (laughs) Always well stated, this guy. Sam, I wanted to ask you, because I've never seen a UFO. I would love to, but I can tell you that I've never seen anything that I couldn't, at least in general terms, identify in the skies. Have you been a witness to a UFO and what, in connection with all of that, researcher that you are, doggedly going after the truth, what did you find out about the Tinley Park sightings, which were very close to where you and your wife live? Oh, yeah. The Tinley Park sighting was one of the best mass sightings of all time. Actually, you know, that's my love, mass sightings. Um, That sighting was incredible and strangely enough i didn't get to see it i had a sighting prior to that the year before in may in fact i was just talking about this yesterday it was either the second or the third on a friday evening at 9 40 at the intersection of the grange road 159th you would know it where it was at and it was over the pet boys and julie pointed out an extremely large object up there and i didn't know what it was when I was looking at it, it it was a big orb. It looked like the sun, about the size of the sun, too. It would be like a, um, a half a dollar at arm's length. Oh, Julie says bigger than that. And, and coming from it, oozing from it, were smaller orbs, the exact color, but tiny, much smaller. Much like if you were watching um, molted um, metal oozing from the bottom of something. And then all the way around it, there were these sparks that were like arcing, uh, like if you had arcing welding arcs, sparking, it was amazing. That object sat stationary in the sky and the color was that of a a setting sun or the orangish red sun in the morning, that same color, beautiful. We had a 13 mile an hour wind coming from due north. This object didn't budge an inch. It sat there absolutely static. Then it moved westerly, southwesterly. And it did so in a slow fashion and picked up pace. And when it was doing that, as it was moving, how we were seeing it, it was actually going through the spectrum of the um, of the rainbow. So it was going through a Doppler effect. And that's purely because there are two things, distance, and our observation, or possibly because of its motion, or all three things. So there was a change to its atmosphere or gases around it, ionization of some sort, and how we were seeing it, or possibly just the way we're seeing it because of the distance. It's amazing. But that happened in 2003, 2004, August 21st, was the first mass sighting in Tinley Park. Now, it wasn't just in Tinley Park. Earlier than that, this very same object, which was three, uh, what people were saying is three orangish red uh, illuminations uh, in the configuration of an isosceles triangle. That same configuration uh, was seen in, uh, actually three of them were seen in Rockford in 2000, actually in 1999 on New Year's Eve, going into a number of sightings up to 2001. And we had that sighting down in Southern Illinois. Remember that triangular craft, the police chasing it? It was relatively similar, if not one of the same objects. And I say one of the same objects because that was actually three different objects being seen down there. The isosceles, an equilateral, and a rectangular UFO, like a big rectangular square like a, a, a building floating in the sky. 
And that's commonplace. With these isosceles triangles, you have con other configurations or other objects, I should say, being seen in accompaniment. The large orange orbs, or sometimes the reddish or orange, depending on, again, how or distance and speed. Uh, the other one is something that looks like a horseshoe, and it has a boom on it with a round object on top of it, almost like what you would expect of seeing in the movie, um, the original um, uh, War of the Worlds type, something like that, but not quite. So there were other things being seen. Uh, thousands of people observed this in multiple locations. Uh, British Columbia, New York, Illinois, uh, multiple places in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, down in uh, Texas, uh, Houston. And then a, a day or so later, and it was in um, Melbourne, Australia. Now we have these things recorded on video. So we're able to synchronize and see that, no, it seems as though this is a singular large object moving about in the sky, but only lit up are these points of light at the end. So um, that was by far one of the most interesting cases I've worked on. I worked on the... Um, uh, Rockford case, which was fantastic too, another mass sighting. I uh, worked a little bit on the uh, Southern Illinois case just recently because of some witnesses I came into I came into contact with, and also working on, of course, with UFO hunters. We did receive a video of that object uh, the night before, which was the fourth of January, two thousand. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Sam, and, you know, uh, Suzanne, do you have a question? I'm not trying to hug the conversation. No, go ahead. Odd thing, and we only have a couple of minutes here, but I'm curious about these craft of whatever size that will hover over bodies of water, and this happens around the globe. I recall hearing about this happening in Australia, as well as the Hudson Valley in New York State. So around the globe. Sometimes it is observed that craft will hover over a body of water and draw up massive amounts of water and i'm going is that uh, kind of a cosmic filling station i'm very curious about that <laughs> yeah that's happened in fact uh it's happened to ranchers where they go out and they know they just filled up say for instance their reservoir uh for the cattle and all of a sudden they find it empty the next day and in one instance i recall a situation not only did they find the water drawn out of it but their cattle inside of it. What oh accounts for that? So, you know, um, <laughs> these are things that, that, that really puzzle you, and there's no harm to the cattle. It isn't that they have lasso marks around their neck or, or one thing or another. Right. So I, 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 in dealing with the so-called skeptics, uh, the bottom line is at some point you have to be objective and realize phenomena does exist. And it is to our advantage. If we expect to find truth, well, you better pursue it because that's the only way you're going to find it. And maybe it's going to come to you because it's you're not going to get it. Uh, Sam Maranto, a seeker of truth, and so happy to have you on here today talking about this with us. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure seeing and talking to you folks. Oh, have a great day. This you yep. as well sam yep. moranto the dude abides the dude abides <laughs> all right we'll do this again and this afternoon on american road trip talk any other subjects coming up gary we're going to talk about bigfoot oh, a couple of museums go. there's one in oregon one in california you can see them both in the same road trip that will be our subject matter today on american road trip talk one o'clock pacific time and we will appreciate your tuning in thanks so much everybody i hope this is the start of your best weekend of the year